This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the word of God says it, I believe it. That's the way it is. And now here is Janet Mefford. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us. Every day it seems we get more news about the increasing numbers of persecuted Christians around the world. We have Christians fleeing their homes because of the Islamic State, or we have Christians being killed in Africa, or we have Christians being oppressed in places like North Korea. Why does it happen? Well, the Bible speaks quite clearly on the subject of persecution. And so we're going to talk about it today with Dr. Gregory Cochran. He serves as Associate Professor of Theology in the School of Christian Ministries at California Baptist University and is the Director of the Applied Theology Program. And he is out with a book, a great book, Christians in the Crosshairs, Persecution in the Bible and Around the World Today. And Greg, so wonderful to have you here. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate it. This is a very hard subject. I know a lot of people don't want to talk about persecution because it's depressing, brings you down and so forth. But a lot of people also are confused about the definition of it, because we'll talk about persecution of Christians here who are losing bakeries over the gay issue in the United States. And then we talk about persecution of Islamic State uh, Christians who are in the crosshairs there. How would you take the word persecution and explain it to people what it really is? Yeah, well, so first, uh, I would just on your first point, you're right that people don't want to hear about this a lot of times because they think it's going to be a downer. Right. right. <laughs> you know, I think it's just going to be depressing, and who wants to read a book that's going to depress you? But um, from my own experience in working with the persecuted church and thinking through this biblically, I, I usually come away refreshed and encouraged and just more, as Peter says, you know, more sober minded. Um, there's, there's always a victory at the end of it, right? Because right. of the resurrection of Christ. Amen. Um, but but to your main point on the definition of persecution, yeah, we, we need to get this clear because there are all kinds of actions against Christians. Um, are we suffering because we're part of a political movement? Are we suffering because we're, you know, we're um, doing something offensive and it's just people respond with hostility towards offensive people? Uh, we have to get that clear because in the scriptures, Jesus, for example, in Matthew 5, 10 to 12, talks about persecution in such a way that it could include something as slight as just slander, or um, it could include people saying things falsely against you. But it, it could include the more fantastic varieties of suffering, too, going to prison uh, being and, and possibly losing your business. So there's a, a wide range of the different um, forms that persecution can take, but basically persecution only happens in, in two kinds. Hmm. There's the kind of persecution where an individual responds with hostility towards a, a, another Christian or a Christian group, or there's the kind of persecution that is institutional. Hmm. And that kind of persecution would be where say, an entire university system or a school system or a county government or even, you know, in some context, a family unit where 
the, the, the social structure depends on the family. An entire family unit can bring persecution against uh, an individual Christian or a group of Christians. So um, the persecution itself either happens because one individual lashes out or because an institution lashes out against a Christian. That's interesting. I think that's true. And and it's important to differentiate there because you can have one particular case where you're being persecuted or, you know, you see examples like that in the, the, the Bible about Paul being persecuted, shipwrecked and stoned and so forth. Or you can have groups. So this is what we see, for example, in the Middle East. Christians, right. you know, are persecuted because they're Christians and they're being displaced in huge numbers. And and I'm curious what you think of the state of persecution right now, because all these reports that have come out, for example, have said, you know, genocide against Christians and persecution against Christians is extremely right. high right now. What uh-huh. do you make of that? And where do you see the worst persecution taking place? Well, probably, oh, geez, that's a tough one, uh, because you can mean worse by the amount or the raw numbers or the severity, the kind of cruelty that goes on. Certainly at the top of the list of the worst persecution would be somewhere like North Korea, where, um, but, but, that's true against Christian against Christians and Christianity in North Korea, but it's also true against many of the citizens there. Mm-hmm. But Christians in particular have been targeted, and some terrible atrocities have occurred against them. I, I speak of one, and I don't give the graphic details in the book, but the U.S. Council on International Religious Freedom has done a, a full report on the severity of the suffering in North Korea. So that's one place. I think Saudi Arabia might be there, but we don't get a lot of reports on Saudi Arabia. But certainly if you're a Christian in Saudi Arabia, you're not, you're not in a good place. Um, right. so, there's, so there's severe restrictions there. Raw numbers, um, Iraq, you mentioned in the Middle East, earlier this century, 35% of the citizens of Iraq were Christians. Hmm. Now that number is 1.5%. Crazy. So wow. I do think words like genocide <laughs> yeah. are, um, are appropriate yeah. in those settings. Yeah, they really are. They really are. So when we look, though, at martyrdom, Martyrdom uh-huh. is a different matter, isn't it, than yes. persecution? Because persecution doesn't necessarily mean that you lose your life. Excellent. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> That's brilliant. I learned uh, that, that from exactly you. <laughs> right. yeah. Well, it is exactly right. And one of the one of the kind of downstream effects of the book is I, I would like for people to focus attention on persecution particularly because that that's an ethical issue that that's something that we can can know in fact Jesus says blessed are you when yeah. so so there's something about when this happens we're supposed to know oh wait this is persecution and it's an indication that I'm blessed not not that it's a good thing but that in fact someone out there has recognized Jesus Christ in me mm. and that that is supposed to be an encouragement to me that I'm with Jesus and if I'm with Jesus I'm I'm in the right here I'm on I'm on the right path yeah. regardless of how this person is is mistreating me so yeah, I love the I way you say that. I think a, an ethical element comes in when we focus on persecution rather than martyrdom and then we can define martyrdom just as being persecuted unto death or being faithful as a witness through 
um, whatever comes even to death. Oh, that's well said. And, and yeah, you referenced this where Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount says, blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. And you right. focus in on that particular phrase. What is it about Jesus that makes the world want to persecute those who follow him and are part of his body? Yeah, great. Uh, great question. I I kind of think it's the same thing that caused them to string him up on a cross and put nails yeah. <laughs> in him in the first century. I, I don't think that the world is any more disposed to following the Son of God today than they were in the first century. Yeah. So I, I really do think it's the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and the coming of Christ who, you know, in the book of Matthew, so you referenced it there, in the book of Matthew, Jesus has, I mean, I don't want to say it's an attitude, but it's its an attitude. Yeah. <laughs> He's like, teach them, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe everything I commanded you. Right. Well, not everybody wants to be taught how to obey Jesus mm-hmm. because they're, they're pretty uh, comfortable in their own way now. Yes. But at the end of the day, and you see this in Matthew 25, at the end of the day, everyone will give an account to this particular Jesus. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess. And so our job is to help people understand that now in the most winsome, compelling, persuasive, loving way possible. Um, But even that being said, just as with Jesus, who was incarnate love, some people will react in hostility. Yeah. Uh, to that message. Right. And I think this is becoming more a subject that's on our radar as Christians in the West. We have grown up in, in wonderful situations, most of us, where we have never really expected or experienced any real persecution that we would call persecution. We might say, right. you know, the, the bag boy at the grocery store laughed at me when I tried to share the gospel with him. That, you know, mm-hmm. that doesn't really compute when it's compared right. to what somebody's going uh, going through in North Korea. But one of the things I want to get into that you get into in the book when we come back is is the biblical data on the issue of persecution and things that Paul had to say and things that Peter had to say and the witness of the early church and what the early church went through. We're going to come back with Dr. Gregory Cochran. His book is called Christians in the Crosshairs. Stay with us. You're listening to Janet Meffer today. Janet Meffer today is proud to partner with Preborn to help save babies' lives. Well, my name is Dan Steiner, and I'm the president of Preborn. Ultrasound truly is a game changer. When a mom comes into a pregnancy center under pressure to abort her child, perhaps the dad's gone, perhaps her mother is pressuring her. Most of the time in her heart, she doesn't want to abort, but what she needs is something that will give her the strength to choose life against the pressures that are forcing her to consider abortion. That's the ultrasound. If she hears her baby's heartbeat and sees that baby on ultrasound, everything's different. Will you join us in saving babies' lives? Preborn funds pregnancy centers across the nation so they can offer free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. Ultrasound is a game changer because when abortion-minded women actually see their babies in their wombs for themselves, 80% of the time, they choose life. Would you please join us at Janet Meffer today to support the ministry of preborn? For $140, you can provide five free ultrasounds to women in crisis pregnancies. 
One ultrasound is just $28, and every gift helps. To donate, please call now, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. All gifts are tax deductible, and 100% of your gift goes directly towards saving babies. You can get involved, and you can help save a life for a gift of $140. Five free ultrasounds will be offered to women in crisis pregnancies. Let's do more than talk about abortion. Let's save some lives. Please call now with your gift, 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Mefford today. Thank you for joining us. My guest, Dr. Gregory Cochran, Christians in the Crosshairs, Persecution in the Bible and Around the World Today is the name of his great book. And we're discussing persecution, not just the type that you hear about overseas, but also the type that every believer experiences to some extent as the world identifies that we are those who belong to Jesus Christ. And I think of this passage, this famous passage everybody will think of, I'm sure, Greg, from John 15, where Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. This is a hard passage. I mean, a lot of us, we want to be liked. We we think of, hey, we're just, we, we love our neighbors ourselves and we're charitable and we're kind and good. And why doesn't the world like us more? Um, this is a kind of an issue for a lot of Christians to get their minds around and say, why is it? What was Jesus really saying there? Yeah, so... Um I think that the lesson is Jesus himself is incarnate love and people hated that um, in the sense of rejecting that and refusing to go along with that. I think that we are identified with Jesus. It's a part of our sanctification as we're being set apart in Christ. Well, we're being set apart from the very world that he called us out of. And so in some ways, it's just that it's the threat to someone's stability, that if they're going along just fine and someone swims by in the other direction and says, hey, follow me, this is actually the way of life, it, it's startling and it's upsetting. When, when we call people to believe in Jesus, we're really calling them to turn around and, and go a, a completely different way. Yeah. And so we should expect some tension there. But then to, to further to your question, I think in that John 15 passage, there's, I, I quoted in the book, but I use the term idle spies. Yeah. I I think there's an aspect in which people really do want to believe that there's a better way, that they really do want to believe that there is eternal life. But we're so cynical and we're, you know, we it's just it's a hard thing to believe because it's going to cost us everything. Of course. We who are believers and and follow Christ, we know no, you actually get everything. You don't lose anything. But yes. but but in the front end, on the front end, it, it does seem like it would cost you everything, namely your sins that you're so attached to. Oh, that's exactly what it is. And we're born loving our sin, and it's hard to give it up. And and yet yeah. you're right. When you become a Christian, you gain so much more than you lost. And this is another reference that you use, a great passage, one of my very favorites from Mark 835, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it, the words of Jesus. 
this is a hard thing to be a Christian. Is persecution to some extent something that you ought to expect when you become a Christian? I sometimes use the phrase with Christians, this is what you signed up for. I mean, if you yeah. thought you were going to have a, a wonderful, happy life and everybody would love you because you now belong to Jesus Christ, the exact opposite is actually what you ought to expect. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And in fact, Paul says that. You, I, I don't know if you call it a promise, but it's a clear declaration in Second Timothy 3.12. Anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Yes. So you kind of have the word of God <laughs> um, on that. But, but again, that's the thing that up front would cause people to, to, to wait, whoa, a waver. I'm, I'm not, I don't want to go that direction. But, but Jesus talks that way to people who are wanting to follow him. And he says, unless you uh, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. Because his way is the opposite way of the rest of the world. He, yes. he really is calling you to a, an entirely new life. We're, we're new creatures in Christ Jesus when we're born again and when we follow him. So he's telling us that up front. He's saying, count the cost up front. It will cost you in the sense of some public opinion. And in, I know you know that, Janet. But, yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it will cost you some, some hits to your reputation. And, yeah. and people will say things and they will do things. And in some context, thank God, not in America yet, um, in some context, it will mean taking your freedom, putting you in prison, or even taking your life. Mm. But for all Christians, there will be some cost to it. Um, whether it's just slander, name calling or going to prison. Yeah, that's very right. Well, when you look at the testimony and the example of the early church, not only, you know, the early church in Scripture, where we read the book of Acts, for example, but also the early church in the early centuries, this was a church that was greatly persecuted. And we have, you know, we know, for example, that, as I mentioned before, what Paul went through, he boasts of his sufferings in Second Corinthians chapter 11. He says, five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked, yeah. you know, on and on and on. And yet he boasts of this. And he says, I must boast. I will boast of the things, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. What was different about the attitude of the apostles at that time who went through physical persecution like that compared to how we see it? How do you look upon the book of Acts when you are analyzing it in terms of persecution? Yeah, ultimately, I would just say uh, you have to have the perspective that Paul had that, you know, the glory yet to be revealed in Christ far exceeds any uh, amount of suffering that, that we could go through here. The book of Acts really is all about that. Like you said, um, uh, every chapter of the book of Acts, except the shipwreck chapter, has some confrontation in it and has some aspect of persecution related to it, mm. because that, that was very much endemic. The, you know, not only were the early Christians in opposition to Rome, I mean, they were for Christ, but as such, they necessarily were against the, the Roman culture around them, but they were also going against the, the culture of Judaism. And so they were facing it really from every side as Christ was separating them from the world. It, in effect, was causing the, the light to shine in dark places. And so, you know, you have the, the, the persecution of Stephen, and that was from people who should have known the gospel that he was preaching. They, they, they had the roots of it, but yet they, they killed Stephen. And then you have, um, you know, the later they are confronted with idol makers and 
because people are coming to Christ, they're abandoning the idols. Well, sales of idols are going down. So, so now you've got them being persecuted for that. I mean, one after the other, it's a one context after another where bringing the light of Christ exposes the darkness that's in the world around them. That's right. And yet they seemed, at least when you read through the book of Acts, they seem so strong. I mean, yep. here was Peter who denied Christ three times, and that guy was a warrior for Christ in Acts. I mean, it's almost like he's not the same guy. He was so, uh, at many junctures, when Jesus walked the earth, he sometimes had periods of cowardice, and you just don't see that in the book of Acts. Right, yeah. So I think the book of Acts can be summed up as as just a, a record of the Holy Spirit empowering God's people to faithful witness. Mm-hmm. You know, that everybody sees the Spirit in the book of Acts, but we, we kind of focus attention on the charismatic gifts. But really, in every situation all through the book of Acts, what's happening is God's people are being empowered to remain faithful witnesses through all sorts of suffering. So greater is you, the, the one who is in you than the one who's in the world. And that's on display in the book of Acts. That's a great point. You remind me of something, of a story from Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, where she uh-huh. was saying, what happened? I'm afraid to die, Daddy. I hope I'm getting this right with the details, but I'm doing this from memory. She said, I'm afraid to da- die, Daddy. What do, I, what do I do? I'm really scared. And he said, Corey, when we go on the train, when do I give you the ticket? And she said, well, you give it to me as I step on the train. And, she, and he said, that's what it's like with God, is when yeah. you need God's grace, he's going to give it to you when you need it. How do you see that as applying to Christians facing persecution? Because you do see that in Acts and, and even in modern day stories, uh, people who are persecuted for their faith are saying, you can't believe the grace that the Lord Jesus Christ gave me in that moment that I could withstand what I had to withstand. Yeah, there there are just an uncountable number of testimonies to that effect, and things that happen that that you can't really expect to happen on the front end. You know, um, in chapter seven of Acts, you've got the persecution of Stephen, and in chapter eight, it looks like a really bad thing where the Christians are having to flee for their lives. But but then it says they go with the gospel, mm-hmm. and as they go, the gospel spreads, and they end up becoming missionaries. Mm-hmm. You know, who would have known that? And um, going back to Corey Tim Boom, just an, another great witness there is uh, she was in such terrible, I think I'm getting this right, she was in touch, such a terrible shape that they put her in a prison cell that was flea infested. <sighs> and it was it was that very situation that caused the guards not to go in there so that they could share the gospel freely and openly because mm-hmm. no one wanted to be in such a nasty place. And so the gospel spread through that encounter, um, it, it's just one story after another. You know, stories like this are happening on the border of China with uh, refugees who come down from North Korea and then go back into North Korea. The, the Lord is empowering his people and his, his witness is going to continue to the ends of the earth. Great point. Well, I know we don't have a whole lot of time left, Greg, but I wanted to ask you what you think God's ultimate purpose is in the persecution of his church. I think that that's a question a lot of Christians have. Yeah, I think um, I think it will ultimately glorify him, which all things work to, together for the good of those who love him um, and are called according to his purpose. I think that he will be glorified through this and through the end of it. But there's an undeniable aspect of witness. And you wonder how from a handful, what, 120 in the upper room in the early part of Acts to by the third century, 
the entire Roman Empire was Christianized. Yeah. Um, how does that happen? Well, it happens through faithful witnesses. And so there's, there's no question that the gospel is being extended through the saints who are suffering. That's exactly right. Sharing in the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. And it's a difficult subject, as we mentioned at the outset, but something we really need to wrap our minds around. And as you said, to see the ultimate purpose that God would be glorified in his church. And it's just a great book. I highly recommend Christians in the Crosshairs, Persecution in the Bible and Around the World Today. Dr. Gregory Cochran spending time with us. And such an honor, Greg. I really appreciate your being with us. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Janet. God bless. God bless you too. All right, we'll be back on Janet Mefford today after... After this, stay with us. This archived broadcast of Janet Meffer Today is brought to you by Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit healthcare sharing ministry that allows you to control and manage your own healthcare and choose any doctor or hospital in the nation. If you're a freedom-loving American looking for contract-free healthcare, call now, 855-585-4237, or go to libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT for more information, libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. We are back on Janet Mefford Today. Well, in a recent magazine interview, the singer Sierra talked about the fact that she and her husband abstained from sex until they got married. And in this interview, she said, you shouldn't feel like you have to give your body away to get someone to like you. And I really like that. Now, years ago, this was a much more common belief that you should wait until you're married to engage in sex. But these days, as we know, anything goes. And yet the message of abstinence is still a vital one for kids today to hear. And so we're going to talk about it today with Scott Phelps. He is founder and executive director of the Abstinence and Marriage Education Partnership, which teaches abstinence in public and private schools all across America. They train teachers and offer curriculum for students to ensure that every teenager can choose the safest, healthiest lifestyle. And over the past decade, AM Partnership has provided workbooks for over a million teenagers. So I'm really excited to welcome Scott here to the show. Scott, great to have you here. Janet, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate appreciate your ministry. Well, it's great to have you here, Scott. You know, it's kind of interesting. I saw a lot of angry comments online about this singer touting abstinence. I guess this is just a sign of the times, isn't it? That if you actually wait until you're married, you're some kind of freak. Isn't that something? And it really is a sign of the times. And, you know, our greatest concern is that we've got a generation of kids growing up today who don't really even understand, not only don't they appreciate saving sex for marriage, but they don't even understand it or know about it. For example, I I still remember the comments of a girl at a Chicago public high school who wrote this on her evaluation form after a presentation on the benefits of waiting until marriage. She said, after the presentation, she said, I think saving sex for marriage is a great idea. I never thought of that before. (laughs) That's what I want to do. Wow. And, you you know, you think about that, you think, how is it possible that you've never heard about that before, and you don't have to stop for very long to realize that there's really nowhere in culture and society that you would hear a message like that. And so our, our encouragement to parents, to educators, to pastors, is we've got to be very intentional in teaching our young people 
not only to avoid sexual activity now, but to wait for marriage, that marriage is good and valuable and special and wonderful. And so we're called A and M. We want to teach them abstinence to wait. But we also, just as importantly or even more importantly, want to teach them that marriage is a good and beautiful thing because that's the message that's being lost today. Yeah, that's such a good point. And it's really sad when you have somebody saying, I never really thought about not having sex until I got married. Is it partly because marriage has really been looked upon with less reverence in the last decade or so that people say, well, why do I need to get married? I can live together. And if that doesn't work out, I can go live with another guy. No question. Marriage rates are at an all-time recorded low in our culture. For the first time ever, our marriage rates have dipped below 50%. Hmm. So we have always been a majority marriage culture, and for the first time about a year or so ago, we dropped below 50% to where we are no longer a majority uh, married country. And so at the same time, rates of cohabitation are at an all-time high. So yes, that certainly is a part of it. But it's not even... It's not even that marriage is disparaged so much as it's just not even discussed. It's not even talked about. So that the typical sex education program, for example, is going to go class after class after class talking to kids about sex with no mention ever about marriage. That's our biggest concern. Wow. Well, and that's that's such a fundamental thing. And I guess if you went through school years ago, you just assume, of course, they're going to be talking about marriage. But you hear about yeah. all of these sex ed classes that just anything goes. They teach them anything and everything, but without any sort of moral foundation. What have you been observing about the the problems with sex ed programs per se and what they leave out and what they inculcate in kids as far as a worldview? Yeah, well, and that's the biggest problem is what they leave out, is, uh, again, is the marriage, the marriage component. And that's not just sex education. That's going to be abstinence education programs as well. Unfortunately, and I say this with some sadness, that increasingly abstinence education programs don't even mention marriage either because, well, it's too controversial. We don't want to go there. It's confusing. And this is, you know, sort of the trumpet that I'm trying to, to, to blow is that let people know that it's really, really critical. If you're going to teach them anything about sex, particularly abstinence, you have to teach them about marriage. So coming back to the sex education programs, they're just crazy. I mean, if people knew what most, uh, I don't know if I should say most, well, most sex education programs for sure. I was going to say most schools, but a lot of schools that use sex education programs, the kinds of things that are being taught today, I would say that much of the sexual dysfunction in our culture is being uh, inculcated through sex education programs, which are going to teach basically that anything goes. Yeah. You need to, uh, anything except marriage, that is to say. Yeah. <laughs> so that you should experiment, you should explore, you should try to figure out, you know, what your gender is, you should try to figure out what kind of lifestyle you want. And, and all of this nonsense, really, is actually being peddled in our schools. Now, Planned Parenthood is not only the largest provider of abortion in America, it's also the largest provider of sex education. Let that sink in for a minute. Yeah. That Planned Parenthood is the largest provider of sex education for public schools today. And uh, that's where so much of this uh, dysfunction is coming from. Well, that's right. And, you know, when you talk about abstinence education, I thought that was interesting what you just said, that in some cases, abstinence-based education uh, proponents will say, I don't even want to touch the marriage thing, I guess, because of the Obergefell decision, and they don't want to tread into that. But what about abstinence education, the way you teach it and the curriculum that you use when you go into schools? How do you formulate the whole argument for abstinence? 
Yeah, very good. So really appreciate the question. So when I go into a classroom, the first thing I say is, hey, I'm, I'm here to talk to you about abstinence, which is saving all sexual activity for marriage. And as soon as I say that, you might be thinking, we never hear that. <laughs> and I, that's why I'm here. I'm here this week to talk to you and to say things to you that you're not going to hear anywhere else. You're not going to see it on TV. You're not going to hear it in your classroom. The reason I'm here today is to teach you something that you're not going to hear anywhere else. So listen up. And they're, I'm telling you, they're leaning in because they want to hear this. They've never heard it before. Goodness. Do you have difficulty getting into public schools in order to expound the message of abstinence before marriage? Some yes, some no. So basically, we go to schools that want us. And there are a lot of schools that don't. There are a lot of schools that do. And so we're not going to fight a battle. We are going to make a presentation. If the school uh, will have us, we will go in. Now, we provide workbooks. I've got five different workbooks that we've written over the years. One we did with A.C. Green from the NBA. And what we do is we provide workbooks for schools, and then we train up the teachers how to teach it. Because if we can train the teachers who are already in the classroom to teach the program, they're going to teach it the next 10, 15, 20, 25 years. That's good. What what sorts of approaches do you take? I mean, you obviously have a, a number of age ranges in the public schools. I don't know how young you start, but you have different curricula for different age groups. How do you approach yeah. the issue for the younger ones versus the older ones? Uh, not much different, to be honest with you. Uh, our programs are really only middle school and high school. And so we're really talking about 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th grade, where we, where we really fundamentally teach the program primarily. And the message is going to be very similar in all programs. We'll just have a little bit more detail and a little bit more information for the older kids than for the younger kids. But the central message is laying out, because look, what, what the University of Michigan found is that 9 out of 10 high school seniors say, I really want to get married and have a family someday, and I want it to go well. And so we start with the foundation that most kids, both middle school and high school, do have within them this desire for marriage and family. And so we're going to go in and talk to them about what that looks like and how you can get there and how your decisions now are going to impact the, uh, the future marriage and family. So that's really sort of the framework. That's the A&M piece is, is we want to really go in and paint a picture of what marriage and family are and can be and how your decisions as a middle school and high school student can affect that in the future. And once you sort of lay it out that way, they are much more willing to uh, listen to what you have to say because now you're talking about what's near and dear to their heart. Sure. Now, a lot of absence education programs focus on the negative, the disease, the pregnancy, and all of that. And uh, we don't we don't want to focus on that. We'll talk about it, but we really want to focus on the positive future. Very good. Well, we're going to go to a break. We're going to come back with Scott Phelps from Abstinence and Marriage Education Partnership. We'll come back on Janet Meffer today right after this. Are you in need of a health care program? You're in luck. As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month. And there are no contracts or commitments. 
Programs start as low as $349 per month. And there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance. So your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash JMT. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest provider of free heartbeats for moms in crisis in the USA. When a mother chooses life, preborn centers are there to help with the baby's needs, counseling, and so much more, free of charge. When I heard her heartbeat, I decided to keep her. And now my daughter's about to be three. I don't know where my life would be without her. The Ministry of Preborn is the largest nationwide provider of free ultrasounds for expectant moms in crisis. There's just something about seeing your own baby's heartbeat that moves a mom's heart toward life like nothing else. Will you please help support Preborn in the cause for life? One ultrasound is just $28, or five ultrasounds are $140. To donate, just call 855-402-BABY. That's 855 855- 402-2229. All gifts are tax deductible. That's 855-402-BABY. 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. We are back on Janet Meffer today. My guest, Scott Phelps, founder and executive director of the Abstinence and Marriage Education Partnership. And it is so vital to link abstinence with marriage. One of the things you have in your materials here, Scott, that I was reading says that abstinence is not merely about avoiding pregnancy and sexually transmitted diseases, but more significantly, it is about helping teens prepare for a future marriage and family. And that's what you said before the break, that in most cases, that's what kids want to look forward to. So how do you do that? How do you frame abstinence in terms of future marriage and family? Yeah, so that's the critical piece. So uh, all of our programs start off with goal setting. Where do you want to be in the future? What do you, how do you see your, you know, where do you see yourself 10 years, 15 years, 20 years from now? And we want to have them have some sort of sense of where their life is going. And when I stand in front of a class and ask them to tell me about the things that they're hoping for in their lives, they will say things like, and this is universal, I've been to schools all over the country, it's very universal, they will say things like, you know, get married, have a family, graduate college, get a good job, have a nice home, you know, all those kinds of things. They're very universal things that kids will say. Never, never have I had a, a class or one person, I've never had one person say, I'm hoping in the future that I don't get an STD. <laughs> so in other words, no, no no kid is going to be inspired, no student is going to be inspired toward absence until marriage by, you know, the whole STD threat. So right. we will talk about it, but it's not the thing we want to focus on. What we really want to focus on is where do you want to go in the future? What are you hoping for? And uh, we really want to help them understand the, uh, the way to get there. And by painting that picture of future hope for the for uh, hope for a future marriage, that's where we get a lot of traction and where kids start to lean in and get interested. And uh, so it's not just about the negative. It's not just avoiding things. 
It's really about preparing well for future marriage and family. And all the principles, all of the disciplines that you're going to exercise in abstinence, your self-control, self-restraint, respect, responsibility, honor, all of the things that you're going to employ, the character traits that you're going to develop in practicing abstinence, are the very things that are going to enable you to have a healthy, successful marriage. That's how we lay it out for them. That is really good because I think that's a problem often with teenagers. They don't think past tomorrow or maybe next week. They're not thinking about 15 years from now. Do you want to be a single mother? Do you want to, you know, are you hoping that you uh, maybe have three different baby daddies? I mean, most people don't think like that, but you're right. I think framing it positively is such a good thing. What are the advantages statistically if, for example, you get married and then you consummate the marriage. What are you doing that is best for your marriage with your spouse and also your family by waiting? What do you tell the kids? Yes, that's exactly right. And so uh, Glenn Stanton at Focus on the Family has written a couple of very good books. Uh, one is The Ring Makes All the Difference. Yes. One is Why Marriage Matters. Uh, at my training seminars, I encourage my teachers that I'm training to read those books uh, Maggie Gallagher's The Case for Marriage, Maggie Gallagher and Linda Waite. And what all of these books are going to do is help people understand the significant benefit of marriage for the couple and for their children and how waiting is going to benefit them in having that uh, happy, healthy future marriage. That's really good. So w- what about the flip side, though, Scott? What about the links between premarital sex and future difficulties? Yes, well... There, there certainly is that. And, and what you were just saying in terms of goals of the three different baby daddies and so forth like that, I actually read a story to the kids that's a true story from one of my uh, seminar participants who told me a story about being sexually active in high school. And then she said, I, uh, I ended up being uh, sexually bonded to my boyfriend and I married him as a result. She said, I didn't want to, but I couldn't really get out of it. Yeah. And then she says, now four marriages, four marriages later, and then three abortions later, two children by different fathers later, she said, I'm wishing that someone had told me this when I was a teenager. Oh, goodness. And so that's a true story that I'm able to share with kids and just say, look, if you were writing down your future hopes, goals, and dreams, none of you would write this out. This lady wouldn't have written this out. In fact, this lady looking back over her life is saying, I wish when I was a teenager, somewhat it helped me understand why waiting until marriage is so fundamental. Marriage rates today are at an all-time low. Non-marital births are at an all-time high. 40% of children today born outside of a marriage relationship, and it's especially high among the 20-somethings. Ages 20 to 24 have a non-marital birth rate over 50%. So most children born to 20-somethings, 20 to 24-year-olds, are born outside of a marriage relationship. That's a real problem. And a lot of that is because of the sex education. That's why what we want to do is we want to go to schools, not just stand out in front with a picket sign and say, you know, stop giving condoms to kids. Right. But really go into schools and say, here's a better way to teach kids. It's a healthier lifestyle that's going to benefit them now and help restore the institution of marriage in America today. We think it's really fundamental. It is. Scott, I'm wondering how you address one of the main arguments I always hear from the Planned Parenthood crowd, that abstinence is just not realistic. I mean, these kids, they're going to grow up, they're going to want to do what they want to do, and it's pie in the sky, and it's, you know, and you're setting people up to fail. How do you address the not realistic argument? Well, it's 
it's laughable, actually, because what I point out is, according to the Centers for Disease Control, most high school students in America have never had any sexual contact of any kind. And that 70% of high school students are not sexually active, wow. are not currently sexually active. So the definition of what is realistic, what, what is real, the truth is that most high school students are abstinent. So you can't say what most students are actually doing is unrealistic. It's by definition real because it's what they're doing. Yeah. So it's just you have to, you have to fight these arguments of facts. And so we're very big on facts and understanding what the reality is. And the reality is that most kids are not sexually active. They need to hear. So in, in, in other words, in many cases, we're not so much dissuading them from sexual activity as we are encouraging them in their current state. So, yeah. you know, what you're doing now is good. Stay on that path because that's really going to be helpful. And then we've got a message for kids who have been sexually active, that this message isn't about your yesterday, it's about today and the choices you're going to make for your future. And if you've been sexually active in the past, we're not here to talk about that. You couldn't go back there. You can't change that. But what you can do is you can look forward and you can, you can get on a new path and a new track. And that is a very attractive message that they are very, very willing and eager to hear. Yeah, I can imagine. And that's such a good point that you already have a huge base of kids who are not sexually active in high school and Planned Parenthood would probably prefer otherwise. They have a vested interest in kids being sexually active. It's just incredible to me that they're the ones who are allowed into schools to give this sex ed message when they clearly have a vested interest in kids moving forward in that direction because they stand to make money off them. It's clearly the case. Clearly a conflict of interest. Yeah, it's crazy stuff. So incorporating a pro-marriage message, what have you found to be some of the most effective ways of incorporating a marriage message with kids? Like someday you're going to want to get married, but giving them hope because a lot of kids, they're kids who come from divorced homes. They don't have a lot of, they want to get married, but they have a lot of you know doubts about whether or not their marriages could be successful. How do you help them along the way? Well, that's exactly right. So that's the starting point, in other words. So the starting point is marriage and talking to them about the, the value and the beauty of marriage. And so, for example, one of the exercises that we even have in the workbook, because here's the interesting thing. Kids are not just thinking about themselves, but I find that even middle school and high school students are already thinking about their children. Wow. If, it's not uncommon, for example, for young girls, middle school or high school girls, to be talking about baby names, you know. Yeah. And they're already thinking about their own children. And mm-hmm. this is fascinating. So one of the exercises that we have in our Quest workbook uh, uses a Wall Street Journal article based on U.S. Census Bureau data, and it lays out the poverty rates for children in a single marriage household, a cohabitating uh, household, I mean, not single marriage, a single parent household, a cohabiting household, and a married household. And then we've got several different percentages there, and we say, you know, guess the percentage of, you know, kids living in poverty in each of these different arrangements. And, of course, what we're able to show is that the kids living with a married mom and dad uh, fare far better than the kids either in the single-parent household or the cohabiting parent household. Now, the challenge is, of course, that many of these kids are in those arrangements. (laughs) And so how do you address students who, let's let's say, for example, I'm in a Chicago public school, as I have been, where the entire school is African-American, that I know that the non-marital birth rate in the African-American community is 72%. I know that. Yeah. 
So how am I going to go into this classroom and talk to these kids about they need a mom and a dad in the home? Yeah, it's a challenge. Very, very challenging, and it's a challenge that most educators won't pick up because it's too daunting. Absolutely. Well, we're out of time, unfortunately, but you can check out ampartnership.org. Scott Phelps with us from Abstinence and Marriage Education Partnership. So glad to have talked to you, Scott. Thank you so much for what you do and for being with us today. Thank you, Janet. Thank you so much. JanetMeffer.com, our website. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you there.